0: welcome to elixir mix your weekly elixir podcast talking with members of the community my name is mark erickson and on our panel today we have josh adams hello and today we are joined with our special guest martin martin can you say hi and introduce yourself
1: hi everyone i'm martin or uh, Martin um as i'm called by my dutch name but usually i just introduce myself as martin because that's something that people can actually remember Uh, Yeah, I've been programming for quite a long time. I started when I was nine and have been doing mostly professional web development stuff when starting when I was 12. And I've been in the Elixir community now for about three years. Uh, And yeah, you might know me from the Elixir forum where I am a moderator uh, also for like the last three years. And I am... um, Maintainer of about 20 packages on XPM right now. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came
2: across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, Yeah, I have uh, I have
3: followed you in the community for a really long time, so it's really nice to, to meet you. It's nice to be here on the
0: show. Well, like Paul Harvey's the rest of the story, we wanted to catch up with Martin about his ElixirConf EU 2019 talk that was titled An Adventure in Distributed Programming. So at the time, they were in the middle of building a distributed Elixir system, and we wanted to hear how things have gone and kind of what he's learned from this. And so in preparing for this, it's already uh, been an interesting discussion and lots of stuff. I think it will be helpful for people to think about and and learn and we can discuss. So I'd love to hear. So first, why don't you tell us where you work and what kind of problems you're solving?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I work at a small startup company called Resilia here in Groningen, a city in the Netherlands, and we like to tackle problems uh, that either require distribution, fault tolerance or decentralization. We've also done some, some things with uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum in the past. And uh, yeah, these are the problems that we, we like to, to, to tackle
0: because they're very interesting. And in your presentation, uh, I, I really liked how you talked about, I, I, I think it's great to just kind of open up with some of the fallacies of distributed programming. Because what I think is so interesting about this, it's like a list of about eight things that people often just don't even, they're not even in your mind when you're thinking about building your system. Because I, I would just say, like when you're typically building a distributed system or something where we say, hey, I want to have multiple nodes in a cluster and they're going to be connected together and they're going to be aware of each other and, and work might be shared, oftentimes there's just aspects that we're just not even thinking could be a problem. I was wondering if you could just kind of lay out some what some of these, uh, these potential issues are for us.
1: Yeah, so uh, yes, I started with these uh, eight fallacies of distributed computing. Uh, on my first slide, or actually the zero slide that I already had open before starting with the actual presentation. Um, Because yes, uh, when most developers are used to programming on their own machine, on, on a single system. And I actually think that it's easier for a person who has not that much experience with programming on a single system to get started with programming a distributed system. Because on a single system, you can take so many things for granted, like not having to care about latency because everything is right there Uh, and not having to think about that you're running multiple versions of the software at the same time. Uh, And also usually all the parts of your computer work uh, and you get an instant notification if something breaks down, which is also not true if you have multiple things connected over, for instance, the internet. So those kinds of problems uh, or yeah, fallacies, those kinds of things all happen when you're talking about distributed systems. And you have to keep them in mind, be really mindful of them because it is so easy to, to forget that they are there. Yeah, like one of those
0: that uh, comes up, I think it does come up a fair bit uh, when we talk about Elixir, is that the network is reliable. Because um, we, we talk about the idea of a split brain problem, which we'll, we'll talk about more as we go on. But just that you know, a network interface could fail on a, a, a virtual private machine that your software is running on or a misconfiguration of the network could happen, uh, just where something happens and you just take it for granted that these are connected and they're going to stay connected. And the bandwidth between the machines, I don't even think about what my bandwidth is. I might, if I stop and think about it, it's like, oh, it's probably gigabit ethernet. Uh, but is it really? And then how much communication is going across? Is it shared? Uh, is it a shared tunnel, You know, a shared uh, pipe? So lots of these things, I think we just take for granted. And especially when we're coming from the perspective of like, I'm building a Rails app or a PHP or something where the uh, machines aren't even connected to each other. They're not even aware. There's, not, there's no distribution. It's just a stateless,
1: stateless requests are being served up. Yes, exactly. And I, this is very interesting because, yes, it's even more true for systems like PHP or Rails or just having a, having a single app running in a language that mostly does everything seri- in serial, so not in parallel. Uh, but even in Elixir, when we're running a system in Elixir with multiple processes, but on the same machine, we usually don't think about network latency because messages appear to us instantly in the mailbox of a different process. Uh, like the, the time delay there is, is negligible. And it, this is not the case anymore in a distributed system. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's, it, it's difficult to keep these things in mind, of course, because you have to think about them consciously and they sneak up on you. Yes,
0: and uh, I'd love to hear any stories you have about where you might have experienced one of these where it's like, oh, you just, I don't know, like any, any experience where you've felt that problem kind of surface, and you're a little bit surprised by it? I have an interim question uh, that, can,
3: that can maybe give you some time. Do either of you know of any uh, testing tools that are made to make it easy to test how your system holds up in the face of these various fallacies?
1: Yes, I know of two tools-ish. Uh, I have not used them uh, myself yet. I very much look forward to at some point tinkering with them. I know there is um, TLA Plus from the top of my head, um, which is a system where you can. Uh, I think Chris Keatley men- mentioned him it in his AlexiConf EU talk uh, actually, but I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, uh, it's a it's a system. It, it's a yeah a, a small programming language or description language in which you can, on a conceptual level, describe the different parts of your system, so the different distributed parts, and then it will try all the different possibilities it can come up with to show you that there are still race conditions in your your conceptual idea of how the system should work. Um, Of course, it still only works on a conceptual level, so even if it says everything is fine, then you can still make mistakes actually implementing the system but that is that's one case i know of and i believe there is another party that is implementing something that can uh actually yes the it's it's the erlang uh quick check implementation uh which is able to uh, i think uh it it is able to to do crazy things with uh like Blocking a scheduler to introduce uh, delays and reordering messages to uh, yeah to 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 show you to to generate potential edge cases that your application might not handle.
3: Yeah, very cool. I have not I have not used uh, QuickCheck proper, and I would like I to. Will,
0: I will mention another tool that I think is just hilarious. It is called it's on GitHub. It's called Comcast. Because it's simulating really crappy network connections, so that you can build better systems. Nice. <laughs> so, like, it will do things like, uh, you know, you'll start just getting packet loss. Uh, you'll start. Uh, you can say like, I want to target ten percent packet loss, or a uh, latency, or um, just you know intermittent connection failures. You know, all, all this kind of great stuff that you might have to deal with in like, you know, the actual internet and. Uh, so it lets you kind of simulate some of those things on your local machine. It uh, works on OS 10 and Linux and yes, OS X, I guess. Yeah. So anyway, so that's a fun one. It's not, not uh, Elixir specific. All right. Well, one of the other interesting questions, I think I've heard mentioned multiple times when we talk about distributed systems is the Byzantine general problem. And I liked yes. it in your slides. You had some nice pictures, uh, you know, with, with uh, Star Wars Jedi's to help yeah. visualize this, uh, but to, I, I think it's, it's worth discussing just kind of what this problem represents and how we can kind of go about thinking about it.
1: Yeah. So in a more technical abstract sense, the idea is that you have two, two nodes and you, in the metaphor, you call them the two, the two generals. And you want these nodes to be in agreement about something, to make a, a decision together. So to be in consensus. Uh, and it turns out that this is really difficult if you cannot be sure that the, uh, the communication between them is reliable. Because if these two people or these two software nodes try to send a message, so node A sends a message to node B about, hey, I think we should do this, or hey, I think uh, I've seen a new uh, message that I want to store on my system, uh, then it's not certain if this message will appear at node B. And then even if it actually goes all the way to node B and node B sees it, node A still has no idea that node B has actually seen it. And node B can, of course, send a a reply or uh, acknowledgement message back. But again, that message might disappear as well. And therefore, it turns out that there are three different cases. One where the, the message itself is lost. One where it actually reaches B but the acknowledgement message is lost. And finally, the case where everything happens like normal and both messages are sent. But only in this last case are node A and B actually uh, sure that the other party knows what they did. But in those earlier two cases, in one of the two, node A doesn't know what node B does, and node B doesn't know what node A uh, does. But in the other case, node A doesn't know what node B does, but node B has made some decision based on the information of node A. And the, the problem is, of course, that node B would also like to be certain that node A knows, that it knows that it saw the message of node A. But then you can keep on sending these acknowledged messages uh, forever. And at some point, maybe one of them might be dropped or not. And only if all of them happen to reach the other party, you are certain that you have reached a joint decision. Uh, so, so, yeah, this is really difficult. And that's the Byzantine General's problem in, uh, uh, in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. I think one way of kind of visualizing this, like, say, Josh, you're going to help me out here. All right. So if I say, Josh, let's get on for a podcast. That's my message. So I'm sending to Josh. Right. Oh man. Josh may never receive that message. He may never hear that. Oh, that I said, Hey, let's get on for a podcast. And, but otherwise, so maybe he does hear it and he sends back a message to me, but I never get the message. So he thinks that we're on the same page, but I never get the message. And then the other one is, uh, where I actually do get the message, right? So then everybody knows. But no, there are, there are three scenarios, and one, what's the other one? I'm, I'm forgetting one.
1: Yeah, so, so there's one, the the, the happy the nice scenario is, of course, when you see each other's messages, and then you know, ah, yes, we will be able to meet each other at this, this time. Um, but then there's one scenario where you send the message to Josh, Josh, and that message gets lost, so Josh doesn't know what to do. Okay, and there's yeah. one scenario in which Josh does get the message, but you have no idea if Josh has actually seen it or not. Mm -hmm. So in half of those cases, Josh will do something without you knowing. And in half of the cases, you might expect Josh to do something, but Josh Josh actually has no idea that it should happen. Yeah. So it it just becomes complicated. And then you're
0: like what you were talking about before, where you have these multiple sets of acknowledgments. like, well, I never heard him say that he's going to do it. So do I, do I have to keep sending him, you know, they have to keep sending the message to make sure he knows. Uh, but like in the Byzantine generals situation, you imagine uh, even like further distributed systems where uh, they are, uh, like you imagine generals preparing for war and they're sending like courier messengers and they're sending messages like by horseback, miles to get to this other person. And, uh, and obviously, you know you can't get an acknowledgement back to say, yep, I'm totally on board with you. Everything's set to go. Uh, it, it's not as easy so yeah it, it does become complicated and it and especially when you start to introduce more systems so it's yes. not just two uh, but yeah so like that is uh, so, so i know one of the things that we that you talk about in your presentation and that we i think we're all love and excited about in the elixir community is crdts yes we love them because phoenix implements them so we don't have to actually understand them <laughs> right but uh, so if we do want to build systems that might have this problem where they might Uh, We don't know that everyone has the right message and maybe one set of nodes has a different set of messages than another set of nodes. And eventually they need to kind of sync up CRDTs are a better way of uh, providing that ability. So maybe you could just kind of give us a little background on what a CRDT is.
1: Yeah. So before, before I do that, um, the, the idea behind this is of course, like when Josh thinks you will do the podcast in one moment and you're not sure if Josh knows that, and maybe you already sent another thing, uh, snippet of information as well. Maybe Josh has some information as well. And uh, now you both have different types of information and there might be a conflict there. And of course, uh, hopefully at some point you will be able to communicate with each other again and the messages that you send each other will arrive. And uh, now you suddenly are aware that you have conflicting information. And of course, the solution is that you resolve this conflict by both now choosing, for instance, the same date to actually uh, record the podcast on. However, like making the same choice here is difficult and it really depends on the data you have if this is even at all possible. And CRDTs are a mechanism that allow this or abstract this away from you a little bit. You still have to be able to structure your data in such a way that it is possible to resolve this conflict for you. Uh, it's not possible with all types of data, but in many cases it is. Uh, to give a really simple example of a CRDT uh, would be if you would like to count how many visitors your website has had uh, in, in total uh, during while, while it has been running. So your simple site might, of course, run in a single server, and now you can just keep track of a counter. Uh, However, if you want to run the same system in a distributed way and you want all of these instances to be able to show the current counter, then they need to know not only their own counter, but also the counters from all the other nodes that are running. And of course, this is fine until the network connection is suddenly not reliable anymore and you don't know everyone's counters. Uh, Now you're showing outdated information. But if afterwards the network connection is reestablished, you can still say, oh yeah, well, you will never get fewer visitors to your site. So I can just replace the value that I still have here of your counter with any later counter value I receive from you, as long as it's higher, because I know that the value will never decrease. So that is a very simple example of a CRDT, uh, which is the, yeah, it's usually called the, the counter where you count things up and the value can never get lower. Sometimes you might show a stale value that's slightly lower than the actual value. But in this way, you can synchronize later on when the network connections have been established.
0: And I think one of the best ways to think of, one of the ways I think is very helpful to, I, to imagine these counter ones is to say, um, I'm doing operations that aren't saying, set the value to 100, because I can have multiple competing messages sent from different systems that are saying, oh, set it to 150, set it to 200, set it to 50. You know, they can be all over the place. It'd be more uh, safer to say, increment the count, the value by 10 or increment it by one. And then by just math and commutative properties, it's just aggregates. And you can just say, okay, well, some, one of them decremented the value by six and one of them incremented by 10 and just all nets together. So eventually they all sync up. So yes, you, exactly. have to, you have to think about some of your, uh, your problems and, and the way you're modeling your data differently to think, how can I break these operations up into something that is uh, easier to resolve and, and, and uh, bring together?
1: Yes. So um, currently, and this is, inter- uh, this is really the, the thing and also the problem, uh, or one of the main problems, um, is that if you want to use CRDTs, you have to massage your data structures to, to fit them and you have to make choices here. But it's good that you have to make these choices because these choices you would otherwise have to make on the fly while your production system has had a network problem with half of the nodes. And now you're like, oh no, I have two different versions of my database. How am I ever going to uh, reunify them with each other? It's, um, it's so- much nicer to have
3: to fix those problems on the front end. For sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Just do it with a little JavaScript snippet. Yeah. That's even better. (laughs) Um, but so currently uh, this, it means that if you're working with integers, then you can like, uh, take the, yeah, the cumulative sum of, of all values so far, you can also, uh, get numbers. Yeah. Count up. You can also count down. You can work with sets. You can work with maps. Or, or values inside inside maps. Um, however, if you want to do any other types of operations, like if you want to store strings, for instance, you have to decide when you get a different string. Okay, do I keep the old one or the new one? And the same thing with maps. So you can essentially say, okay, I can add any new keys to the maps and take the, the merge of those maps all the time. But if I alter what's below one of these keys, then that depends on what data I store there. So if it's a counter again, then not a problem. But if that is a string, then I have to uh, decide, well, do I keep the old one or the new one? So yeah, you have to make many decisions like that based on your data. So not all data can, can work with CRDTs. It's true. And
0: uh, I think one of the ways I've kind of approached, like I, ha- I have built a system, it was my, for my own experimental I was thinking about building a product that I was going to sell and then I did some more market research and realized I wasn't going to. But it was built with CRDTs and CouchDB, which we're going to talk about also. Uh, But uh, one of the things I learned was the idea of how can I express these operations. And so like one of the CRDT type of operations or types of CRDT types is an operation. And how can I express an operation to say I want to change this product's Item description to this text. And then, you know, along with that, you're saying identifying which node it's coming from and a timestamp relative to that node. So, all these kinds of pieces of information can help you resolve conflicts should they occur. And that's what one of the fun things is we call them conflict free replicated data types, but they are not purely conflict free. It is so you still have to have a way of reconciling. So, one operation might be to say, I want to delete this item uh, from my database and a separate operation that was done prior to the delete or separately when they were separated and there's a a, a split might've said, edit this item. And so when they come together, I have to figure out how do I resolve that? It's like, Oh, well, if I have an edit and the thing isn't there, I'm just going to say throw it away. But the whole point is we have to think about them. We have to take them as part of our design. So it it
1: does become a very interesting set of problems. Yes. And I think, uh, I think it's really nice to be able to make these uh, conflict resolution decisions up front. And in that way, during runtime of your system, they will be actually conflict-free. Because, yeah, it's better than waking up in the middle of the night to a burning server or or group servers.
3: Yeah. We had two uh, MySQL servers that were master-master get net split from one another because uh, the client paid a highly expensive Oracle person to come down and break them for us. And uh, I think about that a lot when I think about CRDTs because that was a
2: miserable week. Yeah. Ouch. (sighs) One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com.
1: I mean, it's nice that most software development teams actually already work in a slightly distributed way because I have seen companies that essentially just let all programmers work through FTP on their live PHP server. And I mean, if you ever open the same file at the same time, then yeah, I mean... I, I I would highly suspect uh, that companies like that at some point just like implode. Now it's becoming
3: in vogue to say that production is the only development environment that matters.
0: <laughs> yes. yes. And and I know people who would actually like live code on their production environment, which is terribly scary.
3: Yeah. Unless it's not, in which case <laughs> bravo. <laughs>
0: yeah. And that was like with Ruby where every request would be reevaluating and, and reinterpreting it. So. Guilty. Yeah, so let's just talk briefly about, uh, so say we do have a situation, and I think there are situations where we can build systems that don't have to have all of these problems. Uh, They may still have some of them, but we can really mitigate a lot of them. Uh, So first, let's just talk about, um, Josh, I know uh, you've done this in the past too, but some of the ways we can bring cluster or nodes in an Elixir Erlang cluster to be aware of each other, to have the beams connect. And you talk about these in your uh, talk, Martin, and one of them is LibCluster and the other is Partisan. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any personal experience with Partisan. I've heard good things about it, but uh, I currently use LibCluster and I'm curious about both of you, what you guys are doing.
1: Yeah, so um, both of them are a replacement for uh, for the built-in Erlang uh, node distribution and communication system. And the Partisan tries to use a different way where uh so it's better to yeah if if you want to compare them the built-in way of clustering opens a connection from every node to every other node and this means that when one node drops out all other nodes are still connected but it does mean that at some point like for every node you open uh, uh you need n more connections so it grows with uh, it it grows uh, exponentially fast uh, like the, I think it's the, f- the factorial of the number of nodes uh, of connections that you have open. And this is why many people say that uh, if you want to run more than roughly 100 Erlang nodes, then the built-in Erlang distribution stops working because you're only ever uh, like the system is then busy constantly uh, by, uh, with sending uh, heartbeat messages from one node to the other. Like every node is constantly trying to tell every other node that it's still alive without actually doing any useful work and partisan tries to change this by not having every node connect to every other node but instead building a mesh where every node is connected to roughly the same number of other nodes so say every node is connected to uh, four other nodes and then you can you, you yeah you can can build a a square or or, or a cube of these nodes uh, visually, like like mentally. And you can see that if one of these nodes drops out in the middle, you can still route messages around them. But all nodes only need these four or five open connections at a single time rather than having a hundred. And this allows, especially when you get a system with more uh, higher numbers of nodes, uh, for the system to remain more stable and still be able to communicate even if you have many nodes open at a single time. I'm hoping to be
3: able to use Partisan very soon. So. This is fun. Partisan also has a high par view implementation,
0: which is neat. Uh, What was that again? A high what?
3: High par view. So like hybrid partial view, it uh, has one uh, strategy you can use that's just kind of more resilient to nodes going offline and coming back online.
0: Hmm. And so I did want to talk briefly about LibCluster. So uh, it is by um, Bitwalker, Paul Schoenfelder. Uh, He's very helpful and uh, very involved in the Elixir community. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yes, and he was at ElixirConf and presented and talked about some of the exciting things they're doing. Uh, So anyway, so some of the things that I wanted to talk about with uh, LibCluster is it has multiple ways of, uh, I I think they're called adapters, but multiple ways of using it and configuring it to have it help uh, connect your nodes. And so for me, like I'm running my Elixir system in Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm using the Kubernetes, they call them strategies. That's what it is, cluster strategies. And and so I'm using the Kubernetes one. So it, libcluster talks to Kubernetes itself and queries it for the different labels or or things that are set. And it says, it's just configured to say, I should ask for other nodes uh, or other pods that have the same name. They're labeled the same way as you kind of give it that string of what it's looking for and then it can connect to them and it, it initiates that. So what's really handy with that is you don't have to be aware of DNS names, IP addresses or anything because with Kubernetes they're constantly changing as you bring up and down different uh, pods. So yes. that is one I really, I, I find a lot of benefit from. It works really well for me.
1: Yeah, that's really nice because in the, the, the built-in, uh, EPMD uh, is the system called, and that's built-in in Erlang. Uh, you have to do all this configuration yourself. Uh, either in your configuration file, or of course you can uh, open a console and connect it to your running system and configure it from there. But neither of these is is really nice because yes, it's 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 really cool that these things can be automated now. So yeah, I think LibCluster and Partisan both have a slightly different um, goal in mind, uh, but both are really worth looking at. True, and it might be that one fits
0: your needs at one point in your development process and your scale. And then as you go like higher, like towards uh, something that more partisan, better uh, fits your needs, then that might be when you kind of transition and start to grow into that. So I don't know, there's something to consider. Another thing that we talk about with Elixir is just how awesome it is that it is distributed aware that I can have a PID and I don't actually have to know what, uh, pro- what node that this process is running on. And there's a couple things that you mentioned in your talk, which I, I really enjoy. I've used a couple of times uh, when building like a multi-master aware kind of system uh, where you had leader elections. I was using Gen Server multicall. And I, when I mentioned it to other people, like it seems a lot of people I, I run into haven't heard of this. So Multicall and then the one is uh, ABCast or Abcast. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Uh, but uh, why don't you go ahead and just kind of tell us what Multicall is, how it works, and kind of what makes it special?
1: Yeah, so the idea behind both of these functions is that you can talk from one node to all other nodes in the cluster. So you can pass them a list of, of nodes, and I believe it defaults to just all nodes that you have in your cluster, and say, hey, I want to execute this um, this module function argument uh, tuple uh, on all nodes that, that are in my list, or like all nodes I have. And then Multicall uh, collects the results for you afterwards, so it's synchronous, and ABCast just runs the functions without caring for the results. And Multicall does something uh, special as well, rather than only collecting the results, it also will tell you what nodes did not respond uh, properly to your request, uh, which can help you to figure out problems in your, with your netf- network interface. So these are rather low-level tools um, but they are really nice if you're building a system where it makes sense to drop down to this layer of abstraction. Uh, and this is how many of the other, uh, other systems, uh, like for instance, uh, Phoenix up uh, that work in a distributed way are under the hood implemented. So yes, mm-hmm. it's definitely something that is nice to, to look at and uh, tinker with a bit because it, uh, yeah, it, it can improve your understanding of, of Elixir and uh, how it works. Yeah.
0: And so like uh, the situation I was solving was I had a gen, so I'm running the same set of code on each node in the cluster and say I have three nodes in the cluster. So it's the same set of code. So I have a gen server on each node that has the same name. It's a named gen server. And I'm wanting these to coordinate about who's in charge of who's the leader for performing certain operations. And these are you know, that this is that Byzantine general problem where it's like, I want to know that they know that I know that they're in charge kind of a thing, right? It it gets goofy. Uh, but so what, what multicall let me do is I can just say, I want to send this message to this named gen server process everywhere in the cluster. And it, it, and like Martin, you were saying, like it'll come back and tell you, well, I didn't hear a response from this node. Maybe it's not running the code. Maybe that's fine. You know, but it's, uh, but it, it, it does aggregate all of those results back. And I can see, yes, uh, the message was sent and, and I got an acknowledgement, it handles that receipt. That let me just have these different gen servers kind of coordinate with each other and kind of give their status and then kind of coordinate a leader election. And then one of them kind of is in charge of running whatever pr- processes or jobs it's supposed to be doing. And then when, it, when uh, that gets you know, rolling deploy and one is taken out, then new leader election happens. So, But multicall is a great way to do that. Uh, Just a a great way to have communication between named gen servers on the same code base on multiple nodes. So I loved that one when I found it. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And it's built in. (laughs) That's so great. So I'd love to also, in some of your discussion on your presentation, you talked about Amnesia. And when I first came to Elixir, I learned that Amnesia was this database that was built in and available. It's like, wow, that's so cool. I want to use it. And then I realized, wow, that might not actually be what I want. Uh, so I, it sounds like you had some similar kinds of uh, explorations with them, I'd love to hear kind of what happened there.
1: So when I started using Elixir for the first time, and I found out that there are all these uh, great applications that act, uh, come with OTP or with the Elixir Standard Library, I was super excited, and then you hear these interesting things of people saying, "Yeah, you don't need Redis anymore. You don't need cron tasks anymore. You can do all of these things inside the Beam. You have ETS tables, but if you need a slightly more, uh, more mature." solution to store your data and maybe uh, perform some more complicated queries on them you can use Amnesia and it's great and even if you scale up to a cluster and you have a distributed system you can continue using Amnesia because it's built for that and I was super excited and of course like many people I think that started with Elixir when I, I tried building a couple of hobby projects and I completely replaced all the components with uh, either custom-built um, parts in written in Elixir or some some libraries that other people had written, but it was like, yeah, I'm only going to use the beam now, and like you don't really need an operating system anymore, uh, only a really really thin layer, and then let's build a whole new world inside the beam. Well, of course that is not very practical uh, because for one there are many systems, many mature systems outside the beam that are really well worth using, and for other and 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 another reason is that we have to talk to the rest of the world and we, we have to be a nice citizen. And, uh, there it's, it's just not practical to to do this because there's so much existing technology already out there. Uh, but yeah, with Nija specifically, um, we started using it in, in Planga, which we'll talk about in more detail probably later. Uh, which was also the subject application of, uh, of my presentation. Um, we started using Nisia in this project because at first we were thinking, okay, we're, wielding, we're going to build this application, a chat application, but we're not entirely sure yet how we should store the data. So rather than committing to a certain database, we said, okay, what about keeping this inside the Beam? Because then we can make this choice later and like, delay it until the latest possible time. Uh, which is nice because hopefully then you have more information about what you actually need. Um, But it turns out that Amnesia has a lot of peculiar restrictions itself. Uh, For instance, um, uh, yeah, you can have tables in there, but if they grow beyond a certain size, uh, I think it's two gigabytes, then it, it won't work anymore. And you have to split up your tables in multiple tables Uh, And Nisia can do that for you, but you have to handle that yourself. It provides a couple of callbacks, but you have to implement them yourself uh, to make sense for your system. And this was only one of many things that it sort of provides with callbacks, but you have to implement it yourself. Uh, Another famous example is that NISIA doesn't do the conflict resolution of your data for you. Uh, So if there is a net split. So if, if there's a network connection problem between your different nodes and the connection comes back, then Amnesia will suddenly uh, cry and say, hey, um, I have a conflict now. I have corrupted data. Help, you need to fix this for me. And there's no built-in way in Amnesia that does this for you. It says it, you as a developer are the one that knows what makes sense for your data. So you have to build it yourself. Um, so instead of having a nice Simple solution that we could use until we moved over to a different system. It turned out to be more of an—it is its own quirky thing, and we, you have to build many pieces of the puzzle yourself to make it actually useful. Uh, Type of deal, and that was that was a bit of a bummer. So it's really nice if if you have a really large company and you have a lot of data, and you can and it makes sense to do to have the time investment to spend this extra time programming to make it completely tuned for your, uh, for, for your application. But it's not a really useful, nice tool out of the box for, uh, for, yeah, for, for larger distributed systems.
0: Right. And so I dropped in some links to uh, Amnesia documentation in the show notes. So please check that out. Uh, one is the original or the official Erlang documentation. Another one is from Learn You Some Erlang from, for great good from Fred Heber. Heber. And uh, what's interesting in here is kind of being aware of what amnesia was designed for and created for. And like in, in his write up, he says, you know, amnesia is not meant to replace your standard SQL database. It's not meant to handle terabytes of data across a large number of data centers. It's rather made for small amounts of data on a limited number of nodes. And the practical limit seems to be around 10. So it's kind of just being aware that this is a tool that is available. It has a use case that it is better suited for. And I think from my understanding, some of the uh, suit use cases were around uh, config that might be shared among a set of nodes, uh, but that config is fairly static. Uh, that was one of those situations where I think it might re- work really well because it sits on top of ETS and, and DETS or just dist- distributed or disk-based ETS. I'm not sure if it's distributed or disk I forget. disk. Okay, disk, yes. And it's just something to be aware of. Uh, I know, as I mentioned, it was something that I kind of thought was, oh, I can just use this for everything, you know, also. So it's, you know, just kind of keeping in mind there are use cases where it might be more appropriate. uh, But for the most part, what you're thinking of probably isn't amnesia. That's probably not the right tool for what you're probably thinking of that you would need in your application. But it might be really cool for home automation purposes.
1: Definitely. Right. <laughs>
0: yes. Like doing something at home, experimental projects. Yeah. Play with it. Have fun with it. Uh, so I would love to talk about briefly some of the other distributed DBs that uh, you were mentioning in your talk and just so people can be aware of them and what they exist.
1: So, yeah. So when we started building this application, I looked into four different well-known distributed databases and it turns out that there are, there it, it's really nice that there's more than one solution more more than one tool out there but they all have their own uh, quirks their own features and their their own drawbacks so Nizia, we already mentioned uh then you have cassandra which is uh i believe written in java and cassandra is actually the tool that uh, discord uses uh, on a quite a large scale in their uh chatting system however Cassandra doesn't let you tune what happens when you want to do conflict resolution. So if there's a network problem and it gets resolved, then it's always the latest timestamp that wins. And uh, this is, by the way, an interesting question. What is the latest timestamp? Because if you're talking about a distributed system, time suddenly is no longer the same on all of your nodes. So if you want to run Cassandra at a larger scale, You need another system, I I think it is Zookeeper, that actually handles the synchronization of the various clocks because they're quite sensitive to... uh, So Cassandra needs the clocks to be within a second or something to actually be reliable, to, to work well. Uh, so yes, for, for the system we were building, we didn't like the, the fact that it will always pick the last right wins option. Discord themselves have made a blog post about it, also describing their struggles they had with it and how they sort of circumvented the problem. But yes, that's why we didn't pick this for, for Planga. And uh, then you have CouchDB. And hey, CouchDB is actually written in Erlang, which is nice uh, because it's a great language to build distributed systems in, it turns out. However, CouchDB also isn't really made to deal with conflicts. Um, if, if you have a conflict, then it can either decide to resolve it for you randomly. Uh, to be exact, it does the resolution based on the hash it created, like a cryptographic hash of whatever content uh, actual message or, or piece of data had, which is uh, in essence random, uh, like you have 50, 50% chance between two types of data. Um, you can opt into doing it yourself, but then of course you lose the whole advantage that you would otherwise get from, from such a system. And uh, you have to do this manually after the fact. So then you, your nodes have to query the database constantly uh, to query CouchDB constantly asking, hey, are there any conflicts here and can we maybe resolve them now? Uh, and yeah, that seemed like a bit of a strange approach, uh, at least for the system we were building. So that's why we didn't pick CouchDB. I did want to mention uh, something about CouchDB,
0: just because I I have used it and worked with it, not in a production environment, so I can't speak to that. But uh, so just to be aware of it, what it is, so it's a document oriented database, and it is multi-master and eventually consistent. So it's, it's really cool. It has some really neat features and there are some interesting libraries that you can use for syncing with clients uh, to, to make it multi-master in that way and they can sync up. And a lot of people have found some interesting solutions and, and ways of using that. Uh, yes. and, and so I've, I think it's a great database to be aware of for certain types of problems. And one of those kinds of scenarios I, can, uh, I've, I learned about and this was also what I was modeling my problem after is to say you have like a You might have a couch database that's kind of hosted somewhere in uh, Central Europe. And then you have branch offices that are in different locations, and they can all be syncing up to the central server, but they don't have competing data records. Like from one office in, uh, in France to another office in Spain, they don't have the same records. They're dealing with my own records that I care about. So there's much less likelihood of any kind of conflict. And the little bits of data that they might share um, uh, is probably more static. But then they can sync up and you can have a centralized location where they can all, uh, so you can do uh, analysis and interesting uh, data processing. But it's, so it's an interesting problem, uh, interesting tool, just something to, to play with and, and be aware of. I, I think it's a great tool. I love it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, maybe uh, what I said sounded uh, slightly too critical. Um, yes, it's really nice uh, if you're working with a system, which for instance, might be offline uh, okay. Part of the time, so where your client is not connected to your to your uh, server, and with clients here I mean a, a web page or a mobile uh, mobile application and then it 's really nice that you can reuse your database uh, ideas and also the the format in which your data is stored both in your web front end application or mobile client as well as on your server, and that this data is synchronized between them and that's that 's a really cool feature that CouchDB has.
0: Yes, yeah, so I will mention, just because you, you, you brought that up with the JavaScript one, there is a library called PouchDB. It starts with a P. And that one is JavaScript-based. And so I was running that in a mobile environment where it, it actually is implemented locally in SQLite on the mobile device, but it's multi-master. And so you can just say, I'm just going to write data into this local data store. And then when connectivity is there, it will sync up and resolve itself uh, with the backend and when i lose connectivity i still just working on my local data store so that was built you know for environments where you have you know you're going to have intermittent connectivity and you need to have
2: continual uh, service available we've been recording ruby rogue since 2011 and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence not only on the programming community but also on the ruby community and as we've talked to these people it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at MyRubyStory.com. So I, I, I
0: just want to make sure that people understand that each one of these databases, they are solving a specific type of problem. It may not be your problem, but it's good to be aware that it solves this type of problem because if you encounter a situation where, gosh, you know, this, this problem is a unique problem. I've never seen this problem before. Oh, I think I know about, of a database or a, a backends kind of situation solution that might help me with that. Then that's where you just kind of want to be aware of these things, at least at a high level. So you can then investigate them later. And so I want you to get a chance, Martin, to talk about the next one, which is react.
1: Yeah. So react, that's the one we actually uh, ended up choosing and react is interesting. It's also written in Erlang. Um, and react is interesting in that it is a key value store and that it actually uses CRDTs under the hood itself. So uh, it, it, Started out as just a plain key-value store, but a distributed key-value store. And then in React Two, um, it had the option of instead of just storing plain keys and values, to store CRDTs and describe your data and store your data as actual CRDTs. And then it will use the CRDT-based conflict resolution. Uh, but yeah, and and so that's that's really nice because in that way, as we've talked before uh, already about the CRDTs, in that way you can upfront describe how you want your data's conflicts to be resolved and then that's just what happens and uh, we think think uh, at least for for the application uh, we we are building uh, the chat application Planga uh, we think that that is the best way to to resolve these problems Uh, because otherwise if two people send the message at almost the same time or edit the message at almost the same time it would be uh, bad if one of these gets lost. And instead, when, well, with using CODTs, we can, we can circumvent this problem.
0: Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the, this chat application, Plonga, and kind of where you were going with it and kind of give us an update because you talk about it in the presentation, like this is something that you're building at the time. And I know things change, projects change, uh, business directives change. So I'd love to get kind of an update on where things are and, and kind of where, what some of the things you've learned from this whole process.
1: Yeah, so Plunghouse development started about a year ago, last year during the, the summer break. And the idea was we uh, do consulting for a number of parties and also we have some of our own applications. And we found a couple of times that we thought, hey, it would be very helpful and improve user experience if we had a chat solution in this other web application. But there was not a real tool that allows you to just plug into, to to just add chat to your existing system uh, and have it feel like it's part of the already existing system. And we've seen a couple of implementations where people were like, "I I really need to be able to chat here. And then they built their own Half finished, um, bug-ridden implementation of half of OTP. You know, like um, it, it works, but it has weird edge cases and um, yeah, missing functionality. And you spend a lot of time uh, building a chat system, especially in systems that are not in in, in programming languages or environments that are not used to, uh, for instance, dealing with. Asynchronous messages coming in from various users, so building a chat system in for instance PHP would be uh, much more difficult than building a similar system in elixir um, so we we saw this problem and we realized okay we 've seen a couple of instances now where a chat system that would be usable would be really nice, and it would be nice if people don 't have to to build it themselves uh, all the time. So we thought, okay, we can provide this as a service, and that is how, how plana was born and then yeah, we we had been developing on the uh, planer for for about half a year, and then uh, the call for presentations for ElixirConf uh, EU started. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting to talk about because we were investigating how to how to change this into a distributed system at the time. And the reason, of course, we wanted to do distribution at that time was because uh, we had uh, one potential large client that wanted to possibly handle many users are connecting at the same time. So the idea here was uh, they wanted to build a service where uh, that allowed for video streaming where then many people see the stream at the same time and are able to, to talk ne- right next to the video screen with one another. And that kind of traffic is very irregular and you have suddenly uh, very high numbers of users connecting at the same time. So that was why we thought, okay, we probably need to, be able to scale up and down really fast uh, when these kinds of uh, th- this kind of traffic will happen. And it seemed to happen in the near future. So that was why we started investigating how much work it would be to switch over to a distributed system. And that's why the presentation also how the presentation was born uh, because we learned a lot during those uh, yeah three, uh, three quarters of a year. So nine months uh, of working, working on it, because we we had some experience in in doing both distributed and uh, decentralized systems before, but this was the first distributed system that we were actually building with Elixir. And you you hear these very cool stories where so I mean the the pitch that people often tell other people when they talk about Elixir is oh this is this new language and the syntax is really easy to to learn and get started with oh yeah and if you then suddenly want to run it on multiple computers you just start it up on a second computer and you connect the nodes and you're done. And it turns out that in practice, it's slightly more involved than that. I mean, it's still, it's, it's still a, lot, a lot better than uh, other tooling in, in other languages or, or uh, environments out there. But yes, it, it's never that simple, you know? So that was what the presentation was about. And yeah, uh, I, it was a lot of fun presenting at ElixirConf. And I had um, many, yeah, much positive feedback and responses. And then after that, yeah, we continued working on Planga. But unfortunately, it turned out that this particular client with the with a video streaming solution, it turned out that that project wasn't going to happen at least in the foreseeable future. So rather than still trying to continue on with moving to a distributed system, uh, it went back to the to the shelf of longer term future because, I mean. I it, we yeah it's it's a great feature and personally I I would love of course to to go there and and uh finish it. Uh most of the work is done. However, it's not the main priority at this point. And building and maintaining a distributed system is a lot more effort than just building a normal system. Uh of course, we do still want to have the possibility to move it over to a distributed solution as soon as we need to and that's why uh, during our current development we try to keep this path open to structure or data storage or or, or data structures in such a way that we can move them over to a CRDT-based system, uh, but yes, we are unfortunately still not using React in production at this time.
3: I have never used React in production
0: and I would like to. Yeah, so I also the same, you know, I've heard wonderful things about it. Um, there's it ha, does have a little bit of a troubled history not because of the technology but more of uh the shepherd uh was the company basho and they ended up as a consultancy i believe and they ended up having some financial difficulties and uh they're they're gone as an organization but the software has kind of been released and and trying to i don't, i'm not sure how well it's found footing with a new home but uh so it is good technology uh but it is i think it needs to be it needs a little bit more love. Isn't that kind of the experience that you've had with it, Martin?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, because, I mean, there's still like the documentation on uh, Basho's website, which is still up, uh, is still available and it's quite decent. Um, however, some of the pieces that are missing, there are not that many examples. Um, and for instance, we wanted to make it easy to run uh, this chat app, Planga, uh, not only for ourselves but also for other people, because we also wanted to provide it as an open source system and allow people to host it themselves, especially if they have, uh, for instance, well, if they have confidential data messages, they don't want to share it with a third party, we, we totally understand. However, so we try to run React in a, as a Docker, in, in a Docker in, instance. Um, another reason was to, because it m- would make testing easier. However, the Docker image is one of those things that definitely needs some love uh, to make it easier to, to run it. Uh, yeah, I, I have fought many days with, uh, with the Docker image of React. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. as, as who is shepherding React uh, right now, by the way, um, Bet365 took over React uh, because they are using it at large scale to, to power their betting software. Uh, there, there's some talk, I think, from 2013 or something available where they explain how they are using it and how they are searching their data as UDTs. I think it's really interesting. So, yes, there is, there, there is a new shepherd um, and there is still development going on on React. Uh, I think it's mostly one guy that does maintenance right now. Um, but, yes, it's mostly the... I think it really it hurt the reputation of the database that Basho... Had to uh, went bankrupt because uh, yeah, and it's a bit unfortunate because as a tool, I think React is is great and it has some very unique features that you don't see anywhere else. Uh, so I really hope that React itself keeps improving and the tooling around it keeps improving to make it easier to use, um, and that yeah, that people get more excited about it again.
3: Yeah, and even if you don't uh, use React proper, React Core is uh, is very cool. It's sort of the fundamental distributed
0: systems framework for React. Well, cool. Thank you for giving us an update on uh, kind of where things went. And I know how, you know, I've worked in startups and and just where kind of pivots happen and changes happen and we it's not we don't always get to hear the rest of the story and kind of what happened and kind of what some of the learning that
1: ended up coming out of those experiences. So thank you for sharing those things. You're, you're very welcome uh, I think it's, a, it's it's really helpful for developers to know about each other's experiences and uh, it's it's a bit weird with conference talks that it's always this this snippet of time you know um, so yes, I think it's really really helpful and uh, it's really nice that you reach out to me to talk about this in more detail Our
0: pleasure well, is there anything else we want to talk about before we go to pics um, I remember one thing we were talking about uh, in the pre-show. Uh, I wanted to hear
1: about how you got started with Elixir. Ah, yes. Uh, so, yes. So the, the, the slightly longer version of my story is I started programming already at uh, nine years old. At the time, I, I was in elementary school. And uh, we had this software on, our, uh, on the computers there called SuperLogo. And in that's a very basic programming language where you control a so-called turtle, or you could see it as a tiny virtual robot on the screen. And you can give it commands like move forward 100 pixels and turn 30 degrees to the right and then move forward again. And it also has a pen, so you can make it draw beautiful shapes. And so I was using that for, for, yeah, a couple of months. And then one of the new teachers... Uh, saw me working, uh, doing that. And he was like, oh, I, I have learned a bit of HTML. Would you like to, let, let me show you how, how that works. So he opened up Notepad uh, on this Windows uh, XP computer uh, and he typed in a basic HTML page and he opened the browser and he opened the same file and was like, look, and now the background is green. And if I change the text file and save it again, now the background is red. And I saw that, and I thought that is so complex. Why would anyone ever use that? If I write my super logo program, I can compile it, and also I can like build a standalone exe file out of it, and it has animations and everything. So yeah, who would ever go through the trouble of of doing doing that stuff with those files and opening them in a separate browser program? So yeah, uh, three years later, I uh, I started doing professional web development. Um, well, in at the beginning, of course, it was just building simple websites for, for friends and uh, some, some local uh, shops. And then after a couple of years, I started doing uh, actual, yeah, uh, mostly front-end work, so JavaScript and, and CSS stuff, making sure the Photoshop design that someone made got uh, implemented pixel perfectly in actual HTML. Uh, yeah, I've, I've still been there in the days where if you wanted rounded borders, you needed to make a list item. And then you had this round circle bullet and then if it matches the background color of your box, then you can sort of move that over and all those other crazy hacks that you had to do to make it work with all the internet explorers. So I did that for a couple of years and then at some point I thought, well, this is nice, but the work is very, it's a bit of the same every time. So I started talking on the internet with some people. And this was also when I started uh, becoming interested in, uh, in, in Bitcoin. So I started working on a provably fair Bitcoin casino. And this was in 2012 when there was no regulation at all for these kinds of systems. I was uh, 17 at the time. And I had a blast just, yeah, working remote with one person from Canada and one person from Romania. And uh, it was a really yeah, really interesting to work like this together. And yeah, we, we built a beautiful website and it worked well for uh, a couple of weeks during the, the alpha stage. And then at some point it got hacked because there was a backend bug and the bit of Bitcoin funds that were in there were quickly lost. So uh, it was a really, really interesting experience. And I learned a lot about programming and also about security, obviously. Uh, and after that, I started working at a, a small company from which Virgilia at some point grew and doing all kinds of backend, um, mostly backend related work. So yeah, I started doing Ruby on Rails there. Uh, however, while all of this was going on, in the meantime, I was also still in school, like, like any or most kids, uh, you know. So I went to college and then at some point uh, I, I started going to, uh, to the university. And that's also what I'm still doing right now. So I, uh, I, I have about roughly three days spread over the week of university courses. And I work two days a week. And I can't stop with neither of them because I like both of them too much. So yeah. So the weird thing is that from the work side, I knew Ruby and, and Ruby on Rails. However, from the university side and from my own uh, tinkering with hobby projects as well, I knew, for instance, Haskell already and functional programming. So when I learned about Elixir for the first time from a, uh, from a coworker uh, of a company that we were consulting at, I was immediately interested. And when I read the, the getting started guide, I was like, oh yeah, the syntax does look similar to Ruby. And oh yeah, I already understand most of like tail recursion and, uh, or recursion in general, and how these functional concepts are supposed to work with immutability. Oh, but this OTP, oh, this is interesting. So. I learned Elixir or the the, the basics of Elixir within within a weekend. And then I came back in the office at Monday and I said, it's an interesting language. Uh, And, you know, the Elixir community is great. I pointed them out a a typography error in the documentation and uh, made a pull request and it was fixed. So, and then everyone at the office said, oh, he uh, has made a contribution to the core language already after a weekend of programming. So, I mean, that's not how I would put it, but... Yeah, so that's how I, how I entered the Elixir community and I'm so happy with all the people there and everyone is really awesome and nice. And I have this bit of a weird position because I know a lot of information from other languages um, that I often think, oh yeah, but you, um, you, can also, you could also do it this way. But then I have ideas that other people don't understand anymore. So I'm in a bit of a weird spot, I think, within the Elixir community as for the ideas that I have with relation to the average Elixir user. But yeah, I love I love the Elixir community. I love the people in the at the Elixir forums and I'm really happy to be part of all of this and to meet everyone, to be able to meet everyone at the various com- conferences. Yeah, I'm I'm really uh, Sad that I couldn't go to the conference in the United States, obviously, but I will definitely be at the Code Beam Light in Amsterdam later this year. That's coming up in uh December. And of course in the next Elixir Conf EU as well. So yeah, that's a bit of my backstory of how I started, how I uh entered Elixir and the Elixir community.
0: Nice. Yes, I agree that the Elixir community is wonderful. The the people are great. Uh, it's very welcoming, inclusive. And uh, I just hope we can continue to be, stay that way and improve in, even f- from where we are. So well, let's go ahead and move to PICS. Josh, do you have something you can share?
3: Yes, I do. So it is a Reddit post and article slash repo called Automatic White Box Testing with Free Monads. And uh, it's it's really cool. It's a way of if you write a, a system with free monads, which uh, capture all the all the out, outbound effects, then you can just record the system uh, in production, right? And then ensure that you would have had the same effects in your test suite. So that's very compelling, just being able to record a thing that's working in production and say, boom, this is now under test. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Yes, it's very interesting. I've actually read that article and commented on it on Reddit, asking the author, hey, how does this compare to property-based testing? And there's a great answer on there as well. Uh, because yes, it's, it's a really cool, cool idea. Um, I didn't know how easy it would be to port something like this over to Elixir from Haskell, but yeah, um, making writing tests this way is a lot easier and, or, or easier, uh, like would take a lot less work. Uh, You would at least be certain that the stuff you're testing is the same stuff that is actually being used in your app. So that's really nice.
3: So this brings up a fun question. Are you aware of any um, sort of free, free Monad style projects or any, any Elixir projects you can think of that have managed effects?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think there was one person who was uh, doing some work on an effect-based library, but I don't remember the name from the top of my head. Okay, I'll do my own research. Uh, maybe it's just the one called effects on Hex yeah. All right. Well, that'll be something
0: for the reader or the listener to do research on their own if they're interested. And uh, the uh, one I wanted to share is we just came off of ElixirConf 2019 in Colorado. It was great. It was uh, fun meeting new people, uh, seeing old friends, and just uh, getting to, to talk to people that uh, otherwise you, you only have interactions online, perhaps. But it was great. And I was super impressed with the ability of the the organizers did a great job, and I was super impressed with the video production. That even on the first day of videos, uh, the videos were posted the same day, and or the first day of conferences, and then same with the second day, uh, the second day of conference presentations, the videos were available same day. It was like super impressive. So like even if you couldn't make it there, you couldn't be physically present, you're able to uh, still see all the, the presentations that you're most interested in. So I have a link in the show notes. Uh, to the YouTube channel where you can see those videos. And there are a lot because it was a three-track uh, conference and there was a lot of great stuff. And I'm sure we'll be talking about more of those coming up in the future. So that's all I'm going to say about it for today. But uh, Martin, do you have something to
1: share? Yes, but before saying that, I would also say huge props to the video team because as one of the people who couldn't go to the Lexicon US conference, I'm super happy that all those videos are online fast. And I've already watched many of them and I'm super stoked for Lumen and uh, also the Mint HTTP library it looks looks really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, so my, my first pick uh, is the book about property-based testing uh, with Proper in Erlang and Elixir, written by Fred Herbert, which is an absolutely phenomenal book. So I saw at Elixir EU this year, the talk uh, by Tomasz Kowal about stateful property-based testing. And then I got very excited about property-based testing. So I bought this book and it's really, really well written and clearly explained. And I was so stoked about it that I've gone ahead and started writing a property testing library for Ruby because there is no mature solution in Ruby uh, or, or hasn't been. Like my solution is now almost done, at least for the stateless property testing. Uh, but who knows how long it will remain in this almost done state. Uh, but the interesting thing there is that um, we're, yeah, we're currently already using this now in a Ruby and Rails application to actually test some code to make sure that the ORM database queries match what we think they will do, especially when they all get confined, uh, combined in a complicated way. Uh, so yeah, it's a great book, and I really recommend uh, buying it and learning about property-based testing. So that's my first pick. Uh, as for the second thing, um, if you haven't heard about the Global Game Jam, um, I've been there now. I've, I've been a part of it now for six consecutive years. And it is a 48-hour game jam that happens every year, at January the 31st, all around the globe. And it's a great way to, uh, yeah, do some team building uh, with people you, you know, maybe maybe your team from work or maybe just some friends. And uh, yeah, like program something that you can throw away after the weekend. And you learn so much by doing something like that. And it, it was a blast every time. And what was really nice is that last time, but the time before that, we built an application that used Elixir. there We built an application which was like a sort of King of the Hill game. And the game itself with the graphics was written in Unity, but then everyone was able to join at any time by scanning a QR code on their phone and going to, to that web address. And then their phone would act as a joystick and they would instantly become a player in the game. And at some point we had 14 players playing at the same time during the demo at the end. And it was it was a lot of fun. And what was even crazier was that during ElixirConf last year, Chris, Chris McCord uh, of Phoenix was talking about phoenix is not your application and when you should use a database versus when you should not use a database and suddenly he had a screenshot of this game in his presentation and i almost fell off my chair at that time it was was really yeah a really cool surprise so yeah and the final thing i have on my notes is um, polyphasic.net which is a website with information about power napping and uh, sleeping because it's something i've been doing for for some time now and it's really nice and i mean maybe it works for you, maybe not, but it's a really nice way to maintain like a rigid schedule in your life. Or uh, I personally like the early morning hours when I'm already awake because I sleep less at night and do two power naps during the day. And I like to work during those hours because then I can work uninterrupted by social media or anyone trying to call me, etc. So yeah, those are my three picks. Thank you for listening to my long rant here. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. All right. Well,
0: I enjoyed our time. It's uh, talking about distributed elixir is a, a big topic. And uh, I enjoy just kind of touching the edges around it and kind of feeling around where some of the complexity is and just kind of where we can start to think about things in our own systems and where we can start to perhaps explore. So thank you for doing that. And if uh, people would like to follow you online or get in touch with you, how should they do that?
1: Yeah. So I'm uh, known in most places with the handle QQWY. Uh, For instance, on GitHub and also on the Elixir Forum. Uh, On Twitter, I am Wiebe Martin. So that's W-I-E-B-E-M-A-R-T-E-N. It will probably also be in the show notes. Uh, And you can also go to wmcode.nl, which is my, uh, my personal website. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on
2: Elixir Mix. Thank you very much for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.